Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to Humans Vexus Manchester with me, Clint Boone. Every week, we'll be celebrating the spirit of Manchester by talking to somebody who's helped shape the city. This week, I'm joined by Mancunian legend Steve Adge Atherton, tour manager for the Stone Roses, the Coral and the Seahorses. He talks about the first time he met Ian Brown and heard the Stone Roses music. Out of this room one night, just came this noise, just so angry, so fast, but so, so good. Mm. And then Ian come out one film and went, oh, are The music that came out of that thing was so fast and so furious and so angry. Mm. And I just went, wow, that's what, I want. that's what I want to be doing. And he tells us about how it felt as the band were rising to legendary status. They, I'll tell you what, they had no doubt whatsoever how big they were going to be. It was just a, an accepted thing that, that we're going to do this, I'm going to do that, then we're going to do that, and we're going to do that, and it was just going to go forward. It's a great pleasure to welcome to the studio a man who spent many years of his life 
playing an integral part in the rise of a band who pretty much changed the course of the British music history as we know it. Often described as the fifth Stone Rose, Mr. Stephen Atherton, a.k.a. Adge. Welcome, how are you? Hey, Clint, nice to see you. I don't know about the fifth Stone Rose. I work with the band. About that. About that. I was very close to them all the time, yeah. I've seen somebody call you the fifth Stone Rose, so I love that. Oh, there you go. But then. there was Cresser as well. Cresser probably thought he was the fifth Stone Rose, didn't he? Cresser was a far more integral part than I was. I couldn't dance like he could then. Yeah, he had some moves, But I could he? drive. Definitely. Well, that's, that was the key to it, wasn't it? As we will come to, you had a van and you could drive just when uh, four young lads from Manchester needed it. Yeah. Let's come to that in a minute. First of all, Adj, uh, where were you born and when were you born? I was, uh, my name's Steve Adj Atherton. Everyone calls me Adj. I was born 12th of the 5th, 1957 at 63 Barber Street, Manchester, just off the old Gorton Road. Uh, with a tin bath on a wall outside till Sundays, outside toilet, and an old bomb site outside as a playground. But with the 60s on the way, Mods, punks, pills, acid, football. Manchester was my all in all when I was a kid. It sounds like happy days already. It was happy days. <laughs> it was rough and ready, but you didn't know any better, did you? I can totally. I was two years younger than you, but same thing, outside toilets, uh, lived in a corner shop. Times were hard, but we didn't know it. We felt loved, we felt warm, you know what I mean? Exactly. I remember what's it? I can remember being a kid and uh, people getting up to work in very early hours of the morning. The whole city was black and white then. The buildings were black, you know. There's no, it's, they were technical today, aren't we? But I can remember um, we had gas lamps on the street and we used to have the poles at the top of them where you'd swing on them. They would look like, they used to hang there, they'd just hang there overnight. You'd look out the window, quite spooky, like so many pier point gallows, like up and down the street, rainy, think of it. And then my dad's got to go to work in the morning, we've got no alarm clock. And the bloke used to walk around, this, this trench coated bloke uh, with this long pole, and he'd put out the gas, turn out the gas lamps in the morning. But then he'd also, as a sideline for sixpence a week, turn his stick over and knock on the window to, to wake people up. Can you imagine right, being living living in the slums of Manchester then? You're about five. The one you go to bed, they used to go, you've been swinging on them lampposts, haven't you? Again, aren't you? <laughs> the knocker-upper is coming to get you in the morning. So yeah. you used to go to bed and you'd be, never go outside to the bog at night. We used yeah. to have a potty then, do you know what I mean? Because in case they fuck the knocker opera was going to get yeah. you. And, yeah. we used, and then I saw him one day and he just pointed, because he must have been in on the game and he used to point at you like with like a crooked finger. Probably <laughs> just a bloke from the shop up the road. But that's one of my memories of, God, don't go out. If you wanted you in at night, getting the knocker up is lighting all the lights up. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And uh, and now they they've all gone the, uh, the the gas lamps, obviously Manchester. You know that there's still two thousand in London. They've still kept theirs. Well, there's one thousand nine hundred ninety-eight now because a bin truck knocked two down near Westminster about two months ago. But there is still. That's why it's lit like that in Westminster. It's old-fashioned gaslight which they've kept. One thousand nine hundred ninety-eight. Two have gone. I don't know where they are. Want my one in my front garden and knocker up and come around whenever he wants. <laughs> but that's one of my early memories. What did your parents do for a living? My dad worked at um, AEI on uh, Trafford Park, which was he was a tool maker for um, turbines for engines, and he worked at Mankem, which is where City's training ground is now. He worked with phosphorus then, things like that. My mum worked as a machinist from home, as they all did. They used to bring sewing machines into your front room, and then they'd drop off a load of bit of denim, and then you'd see your mum, who's looking after the kids at the same time and getting the dinner on and all that. Uh, stitching up jeans, and then at the end of the week, they'd come and pick them up and they'd get paid, you know, pro rata, really, I suppose. Mm. So, mum was always at home, and uh, but only a two up, two down. Don't know where they are. I've, I've no idea where everybody slept. I've no idea. I can't remember it now. Kids were born there. I remember our mark being born there. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. 
and it was a, a very small place, but the whole, it's one of those, you've got about 55 aunties or uncles on the street, it's one of those close-knit communities. Baller Street's still there, one side of it with the Friendship Pub on it. There's a little green hill where I was born, I think it's some sort of monument. A symbol. A symbol, yeah, things to go. Was it a Catholic upbringing? No, 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 I'm a, I'm a, a well, I'm a, I think I'm a Protestant, but my grandmother's name is Bertoff, which I'm sure he's Jewish. Um, and I grew up with a lot of the, my friends from school were from the Moravian movement out on the old um, Ashton Road up there, where which was, you know, the old um, settlement, like a wall town. Peaky Blinders, the film Peaky Blinders, isn't it? Like, yep. Last year, a beautiful old period thing that the city of Manchester gave to these people that needed somewhere to live. So a lot of my mates were there. Some of my first mates at school in Borwell Street were from the old Brookhouse Flats, which is the very bottom of Garden Lane. It's now gone and knocked down to, um, like a tenement. And they were all Indians and Pakistanis. So all my mates at school, some of them would wear skirts, you know, and talk in really strange languages. So I grew up in that sort of environment yeah. from a word go. And like you said, playing in bomb craters, I remember that because when uh, growing up in Oldham in the... Through the 60s, there was still bomb crates yeah. in the Second World War, and there were, there, were, there were a lot of fun. When, when I was a plumber years ago, before the roses, I used to stand on the top of buildings and I'd just watch rats running from spare bit of ground to spare bit of ground because he'd left the, the, the cellars open. Yeah. And just filled the rest of it, you know, knocked it all down, carted it off. And now look at it. Now look at the city, brilliant. How early in your life did music stick its nose in? As I say, I'm like, I'm the second born, so I'm 61 now, 62 next year, my brother. God rest his soul, he's dead now. He was the first bloke I ever saw in leather pants, you know, before any rock band. He'd like, he'd say, what's, what's he up to? And he was really into his uh, rock stuff then. And then all of a sudden, there was this massive change. When they knocked the estates down, I was 11. We moved up to Attersley. He was just, he, turned, he used to go missing on a Friday and he'd come back like Sunday afternoon like into Northern Soul. So that was the thing that took over. Um, our playlist in the house, really, to be truthful with you. Mm. Um, I used to look at him, I used to watch them. They'd come back wide-eyed. They had that proper wonderlust that, that Fermi knocked about with. He'd come home with mad tunes of what what filled the dance floor and what, what trouble they'd been up to. And then later on, he's, he was into it for so long. Later on, when I got my first car, they used to nick it on a Friday and bring it back on a Sunday. Mm. But um, it was that that first got me into it, and I couldn't wait to sort of have my own little slice of that, my own little slice of, of mank music. You know, and and then times changed, and and I, as soon as I was old enough, I moved back from Matsley to the to the city. And what were the first records that you got? My first record, you're gonna laugh, you're gonna laugh at that. My first record, I've got it, yeah. uh, I've got it at home now. It's it's um, Tommy Steele, Little White Bull, and it was oh, off my auntie. I loved it when it came out. It's a top, so I, I've got it on. Uh, it's on a little stand in the house. It's the first tune I ever bought. Yeah, um, first band, but then in difference, first band that I went to see was Queen at the at the Apollo. Wow. And that was by pure mistake. But all <laughs> it was just went. I remember you had black fingernail polish, Freddie Mercury. That's yeah. all I can remember about the gig. How did you do at school? Did you were you a good kid? I was. Uh, I was a lot better than my elder brother. He was a naughty boy, um, and because of that, I think my only criminal record is, is streaking in the late seventies when it was in vogue. That's my only thing. That's I always put it on all my visa applications. <laughs> I was caught in Irish United football. I ran away from the police for about forty-five minutes. It would appear in the deep still. Right. Um, but I wasn't a naughty boy at school. I was, I was in the gang, obviously, which because that's protection. It was only little, but my gob, as you can tell, kept me, kept me safe. I moved in. The, I moved to that school the day that the school opened. It was the first day the school opened, and it was like I'd come up from. I knew nobody on the estate. I moved up in the summer, walked into this school, and it was just a war zone. It was four different areas of an estate that had all come from different inner city mm -hmm. parts. And we're sorting out who was cock, and I wasn't bothered who was cock. I just knew I wanted, didn't want to get involved with that. It was a right, it was a right firm. I left. I was the last year you could leave at the age of fifteen, and luckily enough, Manchester Corporation 
were taking on twice as many apprentices that year. So as I was leaving school, this one of them said to me, Atherton, thanks for letting me try. And he said, what are you going to do now? I went, oh, I've got a job as an apprentice plumber at the direct works. And it was just purely by my gob. I got in there and just got it. And then I was a plumber until I was 20, 25, something like that. Let's just backtrack a minute before we go on about your first job there. You use the word, the phrase cock. For, for our international listeners that might not know what that means, the cock of the school. Cock you, of the school. You, the, you don't hear anymore. The, the cock of the school was the, the big boy, wasn't he? Oh, the big girl. We had a girl at our place as well that would knock anybody out. But basically, the cock of the school was the one that, uh, you know, if they wanted <laughs> to take a bit of your uh, bit of your butty off you at lunchtime, yeah. they did or whatever. But if you, if you were clever, you could get them on your side with your gob as well. You didn't yeah. have to fight them because some of them are monsters, you know. We should have subtitles for these international listeners. Gob, oh, gob equals sorry. mouth. I'm very sorry. <laughs> it's, <laughs> good. it's brilliant. And if we know about cock of the school, like now has got a completely different connotation. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's good. well, well thank God you cleared that up. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about the first job then. So you're back, you're, you're out in the, uh, the real world, you're getting your first wage. Tell us about that job. A shock to the system is all I'll say. It was about, I can remember, you've got your brand new overalls on, you've got your tools that the corporation have bought for you, and you're going to pay it back at so much a week. I got put onto Mount Road Gorton uh, modernisation, and I was quite, quite a bad. I, I could never score a goal at football, but I could run really quick up the wing. And I, I was adopted onto the plumbers and joiners football team at <laughs> Manchester, Manchester um, Gorton modernisation, Mount Road there, rough area. It's, there's some stories there that one of the blokes took an instant dislike to me. He was called Tony. And he was a massive, big Irish labourer. And every time I used to run up the wing, I used to blitz past him. And he just dropped me with his hobnail boots. And but I used to shout in his ear and wind him up. And then one day they paired me off with him, working with him. He's like shouting at Come on now, smash the bat out. Get the bath, smash it out, smash it out. No, smash it out. Shouting at me. Mm. I and mean, I had this big pick in my hand. And I, instead of smashing the pick in the middle of the bath, I threw it with my skinny arms. It bounced off the enamel and the the end of the pick buried into his kneecap for like three inches. Wow. And he just lay on the floor striking like a kid shouting, he hit me with the pick, he hit me with the pick. Let's talk about the first time you met the young man that became the Stone Roses. The first one I met was Ian. I was out at the old um, Manchester Poly, where Hatch is now, on, on where the flyover goes over. That building there, the Nelson Mandela building, as, as everyone was in the city, I should That's imagine. Right. Yeah. And uh, <coughs> I was in there... You always said I was a naughty boy at school, but no, I was a naughty boy after. You know, I, I didn't mind fighting at clubs, I didn't mind fighting at football. Mm. And we had a right firm with us always. But I met Ian there, and then after my period of, of being a plumber, I was in a band, I was, I was rubbish. I'm not even mentioning, you don't even go down the route of what band it was, I'm not telling you, they were rubbish, right? Would I remember the name of it? No, I don't. Because <clears throat> I, I was on the scene at that time, I knew... I, I've no idea what you're talking about. Come on, let me I've tell me. absolutely no idea. Sure. I don't even know where you're going from. Anyway, the fact that the band was so bad, I got the job as studio manager at Spirit that was run by Johnny Brakel then, which turned into the School of Sound Recording before it moved out just under the um, Mancunian Way there, going yeah. up to the Apollo. And we had every band you could think of in there, and the noises, the membranes, all, all, Carmel were in there back in the day, James were in there. But then out of this room one night just came this noise, just so angry, so fast, but so, so good. Mm. And then Ian come out one film went, oh, are you? The music that came out of that thing was so fast and so furious and so angry. Mm. And I just went, wow, that's what I want. That's what I want to be doing. Yeah. So I started by just making sure that the stuff was all right, get into the room okay, and help them down the stairs with anything. That's all I've ever done, really. Help people down the stairs with stuff to be truthful with you. I had a driving license, and when they wanted to go and do things, I said, well, I'll take you. I'll take you down there, no problem. 
and it just sort of built. And you have to hit the ground running with the roses. Yeah. But you don't work for the roses. You work with them. That's the that's what's different with them. Them and the coral are very much the same. From our scouts friends, they were my other my other band for about the, the next fifteen years after the roses first break up. So that was the day one, minute one. Was you seeing Ian Brown walk out of that rehearsal room in uh, Spirit? From the the bond with the band carried on pretty much to recent times. Tell us about some more of those early days because they were the Rose is really good at putting on these iconic events yeah. like the warehouse party. Yeah. And it was strange to go from a warehouse party where we had no license, we had no venue, we had no PA, we had no bar, we had no power, to one that crisscrossed the globe with, with screens the size of streets. Do you know what I mean? And everything catered for. Mm. And I must say, I enjoyed both sides of it. I enjoyed the really early battling against the police. I've never been big on authority, me. Um, someone telling me to go home at half one, I'm not having it. I'll do what I want to do. And that goes back to my brother's Northern Soul thing, I think. Uh, and when the Roses wanted to do something different, and we said, well, we'll have a go at it. I was, I went on the Enterprise Allowance and set up a record label called Blackmail Records. There's no danger of any record coming out. We just put it on so that when we put these gigs on, we would be filming a live gig of the first band on Blackmail Records. We had no letter paper. We just cut it out of the Manchester Evening News like a ransom note, Blackmail Records, but then photocopied it on a Xerox machine and then just went to the um, British Rail Properties, said, I want a railway arch. And they went, well, where's your company? Just showed them this bit of paper. They went, yeah, you can have one. Then we got that. We went, went and got a stage. Then we got a PA. So we put the band on and they didn't even want to start till three o'clock in the morning, which was when all the clubs were kicking out the police were stretched to the limit all over the city. And Fairfield Street, where the taxis are now, it's Piccadilly train station, that run down to Temperance Street. That was the back end of Piccadilly, so it was out of the way. So that's where we thought we were away from any trouble. But after they'd sorted the clubs out, I can remember, as everyone came into the building and paid the £2 to get in, we think we gave them a piece of paper with film extra written on a penny tape to it. And we didn't tell anyone where it was either because it was the roses. It was called the warehouse pie, but it was called the flower show. The flower show, We yeah. put it in, in the gardening section of Manchester Evening News on the Friday, and that's when people turned up, got them all in. And when the police arrived at half four in the morning, the band were in full flat. And there were amphetamines used on all sides, I'm sure, crowd, everybody. It was a very fast event. I was off my mind personally, I know that for a fact. And my brother knocked me on. I think they were, they were playing something like So Young or something like that. And my brother tapped me on the shoulder, the old biller outside, and they're really strong, you better go out. And I walked outside and there was a line of about 10 cars. I noticed a load of long sight diamonds on the floor where someone's car had been hammered. You know, the window's gone in. And I walked up to this copper and he just looked, he'd seen a lot more alive than I've ever seen. And I tapped on the window with my clipboard and I went, good evening, officer, how can I help you? Pushing my eyeballs back in my sockets. And he looked at me and he went, all right, kid, disperse this now and get everyone home. And I went, excuse me, officer, we've, my name's Stephen Atherton. And this is Blackmail Records. It's an official Blackmail video shoot. And he went, I don't care who you are, mate. Get off of there, I went, officer, should you stop this proceedings now? And I just pulled out the bottom of the public liability. And I went, I will sue you for that amount of noughts and show him the million quid. And he went, hang on a minute. And his radio crackled and a train rolled across the top and thumped a bit of diesel in the air, smelt a bit of diesel. So this is a, it's a video company, this. And uh, they come back and went, right, okay, bring everyone back to base and uh, tell him to let us know if they're ever doing another one. And off they went. <laughs> so I walked back in, we had finished off a top night with it going berserk. But the next morning, they'd left two coppers driving around in the car. And as we finished, we'd, we'd brushed up the, 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 the area that we were in, put all the stuff in the van. And just as I was about to go, got the, the takings from the bar and a load of cans left in the back of the van. And this cop car with two young coppers pulled up next to me. And they wound the window down and I looked at it, I thought, oh, no, here we go. 
turned around and looked at them and they went, hey, mate, how did it go? When's it going to be on top of the pops? <laughs> so they were just kids like we were kids, you know what I mean? But but in a, in a different in a different gang uniform, basically. Yeah. Uh, but this was before warehouse parties were a thing. I mean, these days, you know. 18 months before raves. Yeah, before raves, before the warehouse project. And, yeah. you know, oh, years before. So it's quite a, a, a unusual thing to do at the time. One of my standout memories of the Roses back then, you'd go and see them uh, gigs like, Legends in Warrington, I think it was one of them, somewhere in Preston I went to. And it wouldn't Preston be... Clouds. Yeah, that was on. And and you'd, Ian, it wouldn't be unusual for Ian to walk off the stage with the mic into the crowd and get right in some guy's face. That's what I, I used to stand in the crowd as well, not by not being told to do by the band. And, you know, he'd be walking <laughs> in the crowd and he'd he'd walk up to people and think, oh my God, and if anyone heckled him, yeah. there'd be like 30 of us that have gone from Manchester. We'd just wade into him. Um, but he would always back him up like that. I remember going to McGonagall's in Ireland and we were booked into a, a heavy rock club, and the band were going through this period where they had beautiful shirts that John had made. We walked in just before they were going on stage, and the dressing room was there, a, like a cloak room where they keep all the cleaning stuff next to the stage. The lads had all the shirts on. I looked inside, and they were dancing at Thin Lizzy. Um, and I went, ah, oh, we are going to die here. And we had to literally break broom handles up to fight our way out. It was terrible. But they went and did them sort of gigs, uh, I was the getaway driver on the paint throwing thing, all that later on in, in life, do you know. And I went, what are we doing? And if anything ever went in their way, they would work a way around it. That, you know, the videos, um, I can't remember which video it's for, but it was like there's a bit where they're just, they're just all moving really slowly. Mm. So all this slow, because that's, that's the only footage they had. And they just slowed it down to the length of the record. This yeah. is very clever. Unpredictable and, and always fearless as well. Going back to Ian, the way he always had that beautiful little face and features and, and he'd just be scared and now and to this day he's just scared of nothing is he they eventually got signed he uh, went down to London to make that that iconic first album did you realise at the time they were making history they I'll tell you what they had no doubt whatsoever how big they were going to be and it was like it was just a, an accepted thing that right, we're going to do this I'm going to do that and we're going to do that and we're going to do that and it was just going to go forward mm. I didn't see it no I, I, I just was enjoying it. If you're in the eye of the storm sort of thing, you just get on it, don't you? Just yeah. just a party. Still managed to bring up three kids and they've all managed to bring up kids, but we parted and we parted our way around Europe and then around the world. What are your fondest memories of that era then? Were the standout moments? Loads. There's loads from the early periods of time where it was just fun. Uh, we'd go to Ireland. Well, they'd do the roses. They'd make it so that you'd go to a gig, but then... You'd have fun around it, do you know what I mean? You go to Ireland, so we went to the Giants Causeway. I've never been to the Giants Causeway since. We stayed in bed and breakfasts. We had no money. Uh, you know, it was very low budget to do things. And we just go. I'd go and ask the lady. I said, hey, "If we give you a tenner, can I just use the kitchen and make beans on toast for everyone in the morning?" And that sort of, that sort of early stuff like that, mm. daft stuff, yeah. is the things that I've found. We went to Norwich, and and uh, that's where. Easter, who did the sound of the rosy? That's where he learned to be a pottery. I can remember being woken up by John Squire with his hands covering slip, going, "Adds you're a plumber. How do you fire up a kiln?" And I'm just leaping up, going, "What are you doing?" And they're in an adult education centre where we're staying, as it's just in the rooms, and they've just gone and turned everything on. And they were all making pots and all that, <laughs> things like that. The things that make me laugh, you know, Pot, all that sort of stuff. Potheads, potheads, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> what about Spike Island? What are your memories of that? Pff, easy day for me. 
Absolute doddle. I blew up the... My biggest thing for that, I blew up the globe that Ian, that's what, uh, probably had a load of weed in it because he used to smoke in those days. That was the globe of the world, a big ball, big inflatable ball of the world. Yeah, it? and he, he just said, what shall I do with this? I went, just hold it in your hand and it'll be in the papers next week, Stone Roses of the world in the palm of the hand and it, and it did. You know what I mean? But I remember the day being dead easy. I remember and that helicopter was nothing to do with the band. We went down there in the car as normal, probably a hired car. As we got out to go across the locks around, what, around the back of the stage... The band all gave me what tickets they had left, which is a common thing for them. And just went, go and sort the, the, the youth out around. And I just go around the front, there's loads of kids trying to break in. I just went, yeah, from the band, 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 mm. dished out. And that's what they do always. And that's what they were good at, making that connection with fans. You yeah. know what I mean? It wasn't yeah, this and that. That's why Ian could walk in the crowd. Men are the people, isn't it? Mm. So that chapter ended and the band went off then to work on the next album. And then not much happened for the next few years. Behind the scenes, and bearing in mind, obviously, you've got an ongoing loyalty to the boys. What was your perception of what happened next? Why was there the gap? The gap was the, was the legal issue, a lot of it. The band couldn't, couldn't record in those days. They weren't allowed to because there was legal stuff because they were suing Gareth and Gareth was suing them. Yeah. I spent six months in an accountant's looking at, at boring things that I never wanted to do in my life. While the band were trying to write and get and everywhere they went, people to know where much to know where they were, um, so it was all about getting them to places where they could work without people mothering them. Really, I enjoyed that period of time because I was able to find places for him to rehearse, find places for him to record. It's a great job when someone says to you, "There's your budget, mm. do that." No mobiles. Not not quite yet. You know, no, just, no social media to worry about. None of that. I can't do social media anyway. <laughs> if you want to know where I am, ring someone else up. They'll tell you. I've not had a phone for a year. It's been brilliant. So eventually the, the album did come out, the second coming, but by 96 it all fell apart again, didn't it? I'd watch it. I'd, I was so proud of that album. I was so proud of the work that they did on that album. They went through hell and high water on yeah. that. There's a lot of blood on that album right across, which I'll tell eventually, but... Not between the band. We all went through our issues. Everyone goes through your issues, don't they? Yeah. Um, but they still created. I mean, people slated that album, but I, I thought it was belting. They, they were, they'd signed to Geffen, then Geffen sold off, sold off Geffen Records, and then that record label sold off to somebody else. Every, every week there was a new layerheading as people were buying up different companies. So there was, it was always, it's, they were in a state of flux, basically. Yeah. And when they'd been given the time, when they'd been given the free reign, to handle their own history, uh, their own future, after what had gone on in history. All right, you're going to piss up the wall a little bit sometimes. Mm. But they still put out a cracking album and the work ethic was there. They didn't fall out as much as people say they fell out at all. They were just doing their own thing. Yeah, They were, you know, you're allowed to do your own thing with the Stone Rose and that's it. You're all grown men. But in the meantime, I was going out when we were in actually in Monmouth doing sec- actually doing Second Coming, making it up as they were going along, a lot of it, which worked as well to return expense, but very expensive. Mm. I was going out and the, the band said to me, have you seen anything out? She went, yeah, yeah, they're called Oasis, mate, and they're coming like a train. Back to the Roses, and that first chapter ended in 1996, and then 15 years later, yep. it all started again, didn't it? We got the, uh, the news that they were getting back together, three big gigs at Eaton Park. I know how important that weekend was to me. I, I took my kids, my kids had to see it, went two nights. How important was that for you? How beautiful was it for you when they got back together on that stage? I, I tell you what, after all the shenanigans that went on with them, they were due that stage. They were due. It all went wrong the first time. They were due that size of stage. They were due that payday, weren't they? They were definitely due that payday. <laughs> so there's nothing without the four on the stage. Yeah. Don't care how many lights you put up or anything. They were owed that. 
they were owed it. Yeah. But the beauty of it was, as everyone says that there was a big gap between the first album and the second coming, the beauty of it was they worked hard to make that show what it was. That Saturday mm-hmm. night at Eaton Park was absolutely colossal. Mm. Absolutely colossal. But where I was working for Moran anyway at SGM Concerts after the Roses split up. He put me on the Coral. I was with the Coral 15 years. Sure. My other love, my, the Coral and my other love. Yeah. Right. Beautiful, beautiful people. Same same gang mentality. Same spirit. Funny. Yeah. In, you know, very, very creative. So they'd obviously still be working, but Moran went, well, the Roses are going out. And I went, right, great. And he went, will you go on it? I went, of course we will. But I had very little to do, to be truthful with it. The beauty for... The tour after Eaton Park for me was before they went on stage, there was just me and them in a room before they went on. Yeah. So I like little things that they do when they do the warm-ups and all that. It's really nice, really nice bit to, to witness. And then they go out. That The start of that film, Made of Stone, where Ian's walking along the... They've not been on a stage that for many a year with the, with the band that he wanted behind him. The, and he's just walking, slapping the people's hands as he goes through, and taking phones off them and filming it. Yeah. It was a class act, yeah. you know. It must have, it must have put everyone right, and it was just, a, and it was just needed to be done. And then to see it all unfold right across the globe was 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 cracking. You mentioned SGM; that they're like Manchester-based concert promoters, one of the biggest in the UK, if not the world. And Simon Moran and SGM is a beautiful machine to work with. And it's so compared with the ramshackle bunch of people that you used to have, you yeah. know, with all respect to Matthew and Gareth, the original yeah. management. And this was just it, where the Stone Roses needed to be. Well, it? Simon Moran put the, the gigs on at the old Warrington Wolves at Legends. And the first time we met him, my middle son and my daughter, Josh and Maddie, their mother worked for Simon just down the road here when it was a smaller office, when he was getting on his feet. But when, when the first time we met him, the sound, Roses were sound checking at Legends in Warrington, and he came in and said, can you keep the noise down with the drums for a bit because you're making the snooker balls bounce on the table upstairs. And Rennie said, you booked a pop band now, you booked a rock band here, you have to put up with it. And he went, you're quite right. And from that moment, I thought, he's right, bang on him. For those people who are listening who've never had the pleasure of meeting the Roses, give us a little uh, little brief, a few words on each of them. <laughs> uh, Manny, he's like Tigger. Just like, you know, he was my constant drinking partner. John, unbelievably creative, unbelievably kind, you know, unbelievably artistic. Because I I, I, I was allowed to work on his art as well, just driving it about again, just just a a driving license. John's helped me out so much in my life, honestly. Ian, as you know, charismatic, funny, sharp as a pin. Rene, just the same, but in, in in a different way. They've all got their, the voices that they pull off each other, the the way they can imitate people, they all had that that force was when there was four of them together like that. Their music was a soundtrack to the early part of my life and I can pick where I was when things happened, do you know what I mean? Yeah. And remember funny things but also sad things that happened at the time. They were a gang, weren't they? Just like the Mondays were a gang. I think you all are, it's a gang, isn't it? Mm, that's what bands are, isn't it? Yeah, good bands. Good bands, good, good bands are a gang. Bands. Yeah, they are, definitely. As a group of people, I loved them all anyway, but individually they all, had, they all brought something to the table. You've mentioned a couple of times uh, lifestyle stuff, chemicals I'm talking about, which you enjoyed, not just through the Roses period, but before that it started. But in recent years, it caught up with you, didn't it, a bit? Oh, God, I, yeah. God bless the NHS. That's all I'll say, Wivenshaw Hospital. Bands can stop partying when they go off, but if you go off with another band, you party again. And eventually, the things that you take come back to bite you on the ass or in the leg. And I had to, after I'd finished the 2012 thing, I went to work at V the next year and I couldn't walk up the ramp after the end of the weekend. And it was just like, you know, lacto um, mm. acid building up in your muscles. It felt like that. So I went to uh, the hospital the next day and this, 
I couldn't walk up the corridor. I literally couldn't walk up the corridor. And this uh, Swiss doctor just waved me over and wrote on the back of an envelope, go to Withenshaw Hospital now, just give them that open envelope. It's written on the back, I'll try and save your leg. Mm. And then what, and what had happened was my arteries had blocked up right down the right-hand side of my leg. Not with not with the with the stuff that you're taking, but the stuff that it's cut with just yeah. floats through your bloodstream and all goes south for the winter. Follows the gravity, doesn't it? Yeah, gravity takes place, mate. Everything's getting out of Cornwall, but not a lot of it's using the M5. Do you know what I mean? Your blood's getting there, but eventually. So um, I went into the hospital and he just matter-of-factly walked in, the surgeon, Dr. Ghost, God bless you, sir, and he just drew with a pen on my leg from my hip to just above my ankle. I'm going to cut you here. I'm going to take... A load of veins, I'm going to wrap them, I'm going to make them into an artery, I'm going to protect that artery out, I'm going to plug this one in. And I'm a plumber betrayed, as I know, so I know about piping. And I went, where are you getting the piping from? Then he went, oh, you've got loads of spares in your leg. If someone tells me don't do that, I'm going to, don't do that, I'm going to do it. If you're going to take it, if someone says to you, this is going to happen to you later down the line, you just go, yeah, right, I'm, I'm young. I don't care what you say, I'm doing it anyway. People are going to do what they're going to do. They've done it. You know, they've done it since we had beer, since we've had everything. When I went in hospital, they went, we've been waiting for your lot. We've been waiting for your lot to come. The next wave of Alzheimer's, the next wave. And I was like, oh, what are you talking about? I can't remember what you're talking about then. <laughs> yeah. they, were just, uh, they were just really informative. They're ready for what we're, the mental illness from skunk and things like that. They're ready for it. Mm. Don't know how they're going to deal with it, the money that they're on. But they saved my leg. i tell you what, they saved my leg and they've saved my ability to walk. As you said, God bless our NHS. God bless mate. the NHS. Let's talk about Manchester, the uh, the Manchester spirit, which is the main thing that these podcasts are all about. What do you feel about the Manchester spirit? I'll tell you what, I love this town. I love this town, I do. I've been almost... I've not been to South America, but I've been everywhere else in the world. And there is... I don't know whether it's the rain that drives them underground, it's the worker bees, it's it's the, the industrial... Why has so much happened here? Why is so... It is a hive of activity. Mm. When you go to London for, in the early days, London needs biscuits, as foxes used to say. You get on the tram there, on the, on the underground, they don't look at each other. Everyone just puts their head down. Here, it's like, I've walked down the street today, I could hear five different languages, and everyone's like, all right, mate, all right, mate. A lot of them are buried in the phones nowadays, fair enough, yeah. but, you know, looking where they're walking. Um, but <clears> the actual city is a friendly place. It's You know, we've got football, obviously. We've, every city's got that, and we've got it where it kicks off every now and again, but I've only ever had to run anywhere proper to get away from serious trouble and once was in, in Manchester and mm. once was in LA so that puts us on a par with West Hollywood I think but they're madder because they all think they should be in the film in the movie industry <laughs> but this city people say that this city was built on the profits of canals cotton steam and coal and I'll have that big mm. time but nowadays when you look at the way the city's growing it's also built on acid house northern soul and rock and roll in my heart there should be blue plaques all over this city where music as as it's the lifeblood of the of the city centre I think from the clubs I don't know how they're all staying in business don't know how that all works because we seem to be coming up from everywhere when we had nothing back in the day do you know mm. what I mean nothing the fact that it has bounced on from the deprivation of the I mean I loved it when it was a dump you know I mean don't get me wrong I loved it when it was a dump because you used to go and do what you wanted to do, and it was a bit mad. Um, but now I look at it, and it's like, look at the people that are coming in. People don't come here for canals, cotton, steam, and coal. They come here for acid house, northern soul, and rock and roll. And that's our new entertainment industry, and it's our new tourist thing, I think. Yeah. Apart from the history that we've got within the building, Peterloo, Masker, and all I've got really into that over the last few years, really get, looking into all the history of the city. And you walk up the canals, and you're looking. I walked up towards Canal Street the other day. We were going somewhere. And on the, 
just back off Princess Street, just saw this massive building and went, what's that? They had never walked along the canal there, coming mm. up towards the new union. And we, we went and had a look, literally down the down the back to see what this building was, thought it must be an old mill, must be all this. It's the power station that does the city centre. Yeah. Never even knew it existed. So you find out new things. Jutland Street, I love. I love Jutland Street. I love um, where Hatch is down there. I love the what they're going to do at the Mayfield Centre yeah. Yeah. because that's where the warehouse parties were. So that development is growing now. So I see the change going to put a walkway in it with trees and all that. So I love the fact that it's constantly evolving. I don't mind the fact that it's going up in the air for profit. They must do it right because the sight lines coming in from Liverpool or from Sheffield or from our side of, you know, either in Wally Range, from our side of the city. The dominant buildings are yeah. right on your side. I love that. The but c- I, cityscape. Cityscape yeah. it is. Yeah. But I know they've got to get a load of money back for what they're pumping up in the air. Yeah. But you also see it on a ground side when it starts to spell out. Grub's the other one I'm thinking of. Grub, yeah. Opposite the train station. And the white hotel over the Salford side where people are just taking over old garages mm. and putting the pit where you change your oil is the bar. Yeah. Open till half six in the morning. Why couldn't that happen when I was a kid? Yeah. Why couldn't I have done that? We had to do it all illegally. And I think the fact that we paved the way for things like that Absolutely. makes it possible now. One of the things I've learned this week about Manchester I didn't know, you know, Soreen malt, malt bread. Malt bread, yeah. That's been made here. Oh, forever. yeah, of course. I didn't even know that. No, I've, I've got so many manks, including Damien, badly sketched bloke, badly drawn boy, right? <laughs> he said to he said, Where are you going? I said, I'll go to the Vimto bottle. He went, what, what are you talking about? And I'm a great, I love the history of the temperance movement yeah. and Sarsaparilla and, and, and Vimto and, and things like that and, and Dangland and Burdock because they wanted you to go home after you'd been out and had a drink. You couldn't drink beer. They wanted you home up working in the mills. Yeah. So we have the temperance movement, quite absolutely we have the temperance bar in the Hacienda, it all ties together. But I love all that. I love that history of the town and the suffragette things. You know, I, I, it just, and the computer. And just every, it's just everything, the trains, everything, mate. Where I was born was close to Gorton Tank, which is where the trains were made. Yeah. And, and that's where loads of people were. And it was black. It was just a black, sooty environment. Everything was black, 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 black. But it was great. I it, loved it then. It's but, like an endless list of monumental moments in time. It like is. The, the, the nuclear stuff and the, um, like you said, the suffragettes and factory records. It's just it's it's never if, ended. If we if it, it just had one of them in this city, it would yeah. have been Most a, people would die for it, wouldn't they? Yeah. Before you go, Adj, who are your favourite humans of Manchester, past or present? I would say for, for, for the actual influence of the city, I would say Alan Shoring. I would say um, Sam and Moran for, from the music side of things. I would say Emily Pankhurst. And I would say Sergio Aguero. Describe Manchester in three words, Adj. Never-ending beat. Steve Adj, thank you for being a human of excess Manchester. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure. I'm going home having chips and gravy. That was Steve Atherton, a.k.a. Adge. Make sure you join us next week where I'll be speaking to Karina Jadav. She's a Mancunian businesswoman and menagerie restaurant owner. Don't forget to follow us on social media and do subscribe to Humans of Excess Manchester. Rate us and feel free to leave some feedback. We always like to hear from you. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.